Good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to, nice to be gathered together again. All right. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we did have a, a, a map out there that I included today so you can see uh, a little bit of wh what we're talking about here. Uh, if you take a look at the map just quickly, I highlighted it in yellow. Uh, Shunem. Uh, so the Shunammite woman, uh, Elisha going to Shunem. Uh, if you see Issachar there, Zebulun, if you see Galilee, uh, Shunem is just a little bit below that, uh, near the, the Valley of Jezreel. And uh, that gives you kind of the perspective. So Samaria is south of that. So, you know, think about the Samaritans and all that go on uh, with the Samaritans in the Bible, and then you kind of go even further north, uh, and, you know, towards Syria, uh, to, to Zebulun and Manasseh, there you find it. Uh, so it gives you kind of a perspective of where, where that is. Uh, we, we had a great conversation going last week, uh, and we ran out of time, and so, you know, we kind of lost our steam, so we're going to have to get our steam. We're going to have to pick it back up and get that pace going. You ladies were really, you were really rolling last week. So there were some good questions and a lot of good discussions. So uh, let's see if we can try to recover that. Uh, you know, as I, as I looked at this text a little bit more, it's amazing. Uh, you know, one of the questions was, uh, why does the Shunammite woman respond or talk to her husband and say everything is well, there's nothing going on. Uh, it, it's amazing how little there was. I looked around in commentaries for, you know, why did she respond the way that she did to him? And the only thing I could really find was that she did it in haste. You know, she didn't have time to sit and explain it to him, she just needed to go. And she makes her way. And so, you know, you have that kind of at work, especially with Gehazi, the servant. Elisha says, don't talk to anybody on the road. You know, there's no time for long introductions and gossip and conversation. You just have to go. And, uh, you know, when you think about then Gehazi and the staff, uh, nothing happens when Gehazi puts the staff to the child. It takes Elisha to come. So, you know, as I, as I looked a little more deeply at this text and what's going on, in the books of Kings, there's you know, Judah and Israel and the kings are evil and it's a bad time. You know, Baal worship is rampant. And as a result, you know, if you remember Elijah, I'm the only one, right? I'm the only one left. I mean, that's, he wasn't the only one left, but that was kind of the climate that they were living in in those days. And so, you know, thinking about this a little more deeply, the Shunammite woman, she sees Elisha as a man of God. And she wants him to lodge at her house because she sees that God's favor goes with him. So she's always hoping to catch a little bit of blessing and a little bit of learning from him. So, you know, Notable points from this text then. Gehazi, the servant, is likened to the disciples in the Gospels who cannot perform the healings. So, for example, you have the transfiguration of Jesus and they have the mountaintop experience. And do you remember what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain? Because there's Jesus and he takes his three disciples up the mountain, right? Uh, Peter, James, and John. What's going on down at the bottom of the mountain? 
So the other disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain and they're trying to cast out this demon and they are not successful. And so it takes Jesus to come and then do it. So you have this pattern of Elisha is like Jesus and Gehazi is like the disciples. So you know, you have that going on in this text. Uh, also, Elisha represents the temple and God and, and all things holy in this text. So, you know, you have the room that the woman prepares. And the room that the woman prepares, uh, one, one commentator said that the furnishings of the bedroom, the room for him, are similar to the furnishings for the temple. Isn't that interesting? So there's a bed, a table, a chair, and then a menorah in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And you have an altar, and then a chair, and the lampstand, and the whole bit in the temple. And as I read a little bit, this was a period where if the Levitic, when the Levitical priests could not be found, a prophet would represent them, would sort of take the place of a Levitical priest. And so Elisha is like, he represents to the woman God's temple and therefore God's blessing. And so she has to go to him right away and, and try to get help for her son's condition. And in the text, if you recall from last week, in verse 25, she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So the notion of going to a mountain is is very much connected to God revealing his word. So let me, let me pause there for just a second. So I know there were questions last week. Were, are there any, is there anything you'd, you'd like to chat about regarding this text from last week? So that I don't forget or miss, miss anything. Bless you. Okay, well, if you think of anything, just stop me, okay? So, you know, a few things here in looking at the text is his ministry, Elisha's ministry, ultimately so leads to the destruction of Samaria's Baal temple in 2 Kings 10. So what's really going on in the broader perspective of Second Kings, and really kind of the end of First Kings, I would say, is there is a battle between Baal and Yahweh. And it, it really comes to a head back in First Kings chapter 18. And yeah, chapter 18, because you have the, the famine and you have the drought and you have, in this case, Elijah. And what happens there is even King Ahab is, he becomes like an animal where he's just simply looking for any kind of grass and any kind of vegetation to eat. And it comes out, if you look at 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 17. So 1 Kings 18, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. 
and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And then you have the whole encounter between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the sacrifice and the water and the fire that consumes the sacrifice even though the sacrifice is completely drenched and the, the fire is so powerful it destroys, it kills the prophets of Baal. And you know, this happens on Mount Carmel. So Mount Carmel symbolizes for the Shunammite woman God's hand and God's blessing. And you know, if you think about mountains in the Bible, over and over again, this is where God reveals himself, right? Moses is on the mount when he receives the Ten Commandments. And then you have in the New Testament, as I mentioned, the, uh, the transfiguration happens on the mount, right? So this is a place of holiness. This is a place to find the prophet. And this is where God undoes the work of the Baals. And so there is this battle going on even in 2 Kings because in 2 Kings you have all this leading up. You have 2 Kings 4 with Elisha and the Shunammite woman and this is so then you and it leads to the end of 2 Kings 4 with that miraculous feeding and you have the first fruits. Um, you know, I talked last week, I think some of the question was about, I think Leah asked the question about the new moon and the different things going on with that. And, um, you know, at, at different stages uh, of, of different new moons, I guess I should say, uh, there's planting and then there's rain and there's the dry season, there's the harvest. And often at the harvest new moon, that's when God often reveals his word. And so, you know, in this text, it, it is a little puzzling. And I, I looked to see what was going on here in the text because the, um, if you look at the text itself, Uh, where was that? Oh yeah, in verse 23. Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. So in his mind, you would go to a prophet if there was a new moon, but he's saying there is no new moon, which is interesting to me. But I couldn't find a lot about that particular verse. But she sets out and she goes, and she goes to Mount Carmel and one question we had last week was um, the distance, perhaps how long it would have actually taken her. Like it sounds like oh, yeah. down the street. Yeah. But then we were wondering like how long it might actually take her to get there. That's right. That's about twenty thirty miles. Twenty thirty miles? Yeah. How that's right. That is a long, that is a long, long journey, isn't it? Oh yeah, look at Mount Carmel is off to the west, to the northwest of Shunem. Look at that. You know, it could be though that they haven't really located the right Shunem. That, it could be. Yeah, there is, there is sometimes disagreement over where it actually is. So, yeah, that's always possible too. I don't see another Shunem on here, but um, even if that's, if that's the case, the Shunem that's on this map to Mount Carmel. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it might take a similar time than it took for Jesus to get to Lazarus. Right. I mean, that was his choice he delayed. It wasn't because he journeyed that long. Yeah. But, um, 
a life that is similar. It sounds like it could be similar time. But then, um, Elijah told me how to run the law of the cyber as you yeah. So anyway, I mean, it, the whole thing is very interesting. What she sees is, I, I think we can, we can glean this from the text, that she is a thoughtful woman that had recognized that there was a war of religions. And she recognized the Baal worship and what all that was. And then she also recognized Elisha and Yahweh and the differences. And it led her to yearn for Yahweh and, and, everything, and everything Yahweh. And so she sees in Elisha the Lord. And so this is what she, she gravitates towards him. Yes? It was, it was Elisha that told her that she was going to have a son, right? It was. And, he, and she didn't believe him, and then a year later she had a son. So yes. Why wouldn't she want to go? Why wouldn't she want to go to him? Right. Exactly. That's a good, you know, it's a good point because she sees that he... Right? He has this ability uh, to turn things around. Yes? Do you think, does she go to Elijah knowing that he will raise her son? Or does she go just because she's in so much distress and she just can't understand why he would have promised her this and then taken it away? Like, does she, because by her saying have all is well, maybe because she's in a hurry with her husband saying, but. Like, does she go with the certainty that he'll be raised, or is she just going because she doesn't know what to do with this? Yeah, I think she's very frustrated. Because, you know, and thank you for bringing this up, because I think this is a very important point for us in our learning of this text. Because she never asked for the child. And... So, you know, out of his good pleasure, he blesses her and gives her the child, and then the child dies, and she's like, I was fine before. You know, I didn't seek this. And then you bring joy into my life only to then snatch it away. And so she wants to know. I think she goes wanting to know out of distress, why did you do this to me? And maybe it, it is a good lesson too that she goes to him in distress, not asking for something, but just like to communicate with him. And sometimes, you know, we should just go in prayer. We don't, we're not asking, we're just in communication. Yep. Exactly. Um, a reminder of that, that sometimes we don't need to know what to ask for or even what's possible. Yeah. But just to be in communication is maybe the important part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very, very, very good because, you know, we have these situations in our lives too where we may not ask for things, but then the Lord blesses us. And then maybe later it's taken away. And you wonder why we, right? I mean, these are like big God questions. Why did you do this, God? Why did this happen this way? I was fine before. I really didn't need this. And, you know, you know as a pastor, I, people say to me often, you know, when I, when I die and I go to be before the Lord, I'm going to ask some questions. <laughs> right? It's kind of like the common we want to know, right? And, and I think this is sort of that kind of thing. I'm going to ask some questions, you know, I want to know why. And, you know, the only thing, I mean, what, what can we draw from this then? But, you know, one thing I think of is we draw from this that when God blesses us, when God does anything in our lives, he's teaching us. He teaches us through good things and blessings. He also teaches us through hard times. And 
we become different. And I think that this is one of those things with the Shunammite woman. You know, she learned love that she had not known before. And so now she wants to know why would you teach me this love only then to leave, leave an emptiness. I mean, C.S. Lewis in A Grief Observed talks about uh, how when a, a person is in your life and that person is just integral to, you, to your existence and then that person dies, he says that person then is that, that place that that person filled becomes a void that can never be filled by anyone else again. And so, you know, I think that's an interesting reflection that that be, does become a void, right? Like if you lose a parent uh, or a child uh, or a very close friend uh, that you, you were able to have a relationship with the person that you don't think you could ever have again, that's never the same. And, you know, and I think that's sort of the thing with this, with this woman is she, she didn't have a, she had her life had a wholeness to it. And then this child is brought into her life. And then now it's even more whole and even more complete. And then the child dies and she now feels this big hole in her life and she's just wanting to know why and we learn so much through these things and they um they help us in a way to think about blessing and increase and then living through loss and looking to then the greater fullness of heaven and how when everything is restored, everything is perfect and complete, then there will truly be a peace without any, any, you know, any holes, you know. Who can understand his ways? Right. It's our faith. It is our faith. It's all our, our faith. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder about those that don't have any faith. How do they get through a funeral? Yeah. The loss of a loved one or a child. But it, it's our faith that carries us through. It is. It is. It is. That is so true, Carol. Yeah. You know, you think about like, okay, if I were to pray over the loss of a loved one, I know that when I pray, like, this would literally happen, that they would come back to earthly life. Yeah. Uh, but it makes me think, okay, what is the story telling us about if we're praying? good point yeah you go to another right yeah the prayer on the other other people's prayers are so helpful and so you're what you're saying is this is like the woman going to Elisha she's seeking right you know join me in this struggle right pray pray for me yeah that is and that's so true right we think about what it is to be in holy community and how we do need each other and we do need each other's prayers. And, you know, sometimes words fail us, but we can still be present and walk with the person in the midst of his or her struggle. And uh, it is like a balm of healing for the soul just a little bit to not suffer, uh, to not suffer alone. You know, and so that's that's very powerful. Yes. I to say I think it's wonderful the way she said to her husband. I know she recognized that Elisha is a man of God, and she said, "I know this is the Holy 
and she welcomed them into her home. She gave food, lodging, and maybe that's the way we should treat our pastors. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, I appreciate that very much. Um, uh, but, um, you know, yeah, it, it, it is her piety towards him is really amazing. Like, I think, you know, as I read a little more on this text, the fact that she maybe wasn't, didn't have access to the temple um, what I read was, and I, this was helpful, and I didn't really realize this myself, but in this, in 2 Kings, you have this account, and then you have Naaman healed of leprosy, and he's a Gentile, and then it goes along, and then the Shunammite's land is restored later, so she, she reappears uh, in chapter 8. And then all of a sudden you have the, these issues with the different kings. The kings of Israel and then later the kings of Judah. And what I learned from this is the temple in the, in the process of all this, Elisha is is serving and ministering as a prophet in the midst of the temple being uh, dirtied and um, misused. And so he represents God's blessings because the temple is in, you know, has been taken over basically. And so later on here in 2 Kings, after Elisha, when he dies, then we start to see the focus on straightening out the kings and the temple is restored. And so Elisha really is the representation of God's blessing among people while the temple is, has been taken over. And so, bless you, and so her having the room is like setting up a little chapel, a little place for him, and she wants the blessing to run off. And that's very much like what you're saying, Leah, that you know, in life, we are going through life and we need others. We need God's blessing. We need a little, a little chapel, you know, we need we need God's people, we need the pastors, we need, we need the word and the sacrament and the prayer to just bleed into our lives and touch us and help us, aid us. Yes? It seems like the woman Elijah had quite a relationship because if you look at that at chapter eight, okay. and he talked about That's a really good point. Yeah, it would be nice to look at this. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. So let's, let's take a look at the, at the resurrection of the child and then we'll make our move into chapter eight. So when we see this text then, you know, you have Abraham and his wife and they were not able to have children and then you know, the three men come in Genesis 18 and they promise that she will have a son. And, you know, she's in disbelief, right? And you can kind of see a similar pattern because then Isaac is born, right? And then Isaac is right on the precip precipice of being sacrificed later, right? And 
it's a very similar situation which you see with the Shunammite woman. But then also, if you think about Adam back in the Garden of Eden, God breathes the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, and then he becomes a living being. And so if you look at just the resurrection part here in 2 Kings chapter 4, I, let's see, starting at verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, so this is 2 Kings 4, 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. So this is very much on par with what we see with Ad, uh, God breathing his breath into the nostrils of Adam and then him becoming a living creature. And he sneezes seven times, you know, so there's the number seven again, right? Which is symbolic of entering God's rest, right? God created the world in six days, he rested on the seventh. So there's a spiritual undertone at work here, sneezing seven times. It's just like Naaman the leper going in and out of the Jordan River seven times. So it's a holy number. The sneezing, so the breath of God comes from Elisha and into the, the child and then boom, he comes to life. And as I said last week, this is a really gutsy thing for Elisha to do because to touch a, a dead body will make you unclean and will make you like you're one dead and you must remove yourself from civilization. So, but instead of, take, so instead of taking on death, Elisha communicates life. So I love, I love Elisha because as I've said before, you see images of Jesus in Elisha. And then he, he says, he summons Gehazi and says, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. So it sounds like um, he says, um, she says to Gehazi, you, know, you go, take my staff. But then it seems like she's saying, well, I'm not going to leave you alone. And he says, okay, fine, I'll go. He wasn't originally going to go. Did he think that his servant would have been able to do what he could accomplish? Or, or did her please make him decide to do more than he initially thought he was going to do? Yeah. You know, I looked around for some information on this because I found it a bit puzzling myself. So Gehazi suffered from pride. And so Gehazi, he comes up in, verse, in chapter 5. Yeah, Gehazi is dishonest in dealing with Naaman the leper because he goes and he says, remember Elisha's like, no, no gifts. This is just God's, God's gifts. Doesn't need any gifts in return. And then Gehazi's like, wait a minute, there's gold over there. There's gold in them hills, you know. So, so he takes off and he lies, right? And he says, oh, you know, my... My master had a change of heart. 
you know? And so it's what I read a little bit about Gehazi was he wasn't of most upright character. And then, of course, you see it in 2 Kings 5, but it even implies that he has a sense of pride. And, you know, the staff is somewhat representative of Moses because Moses would use his staff. And so, you know, it was thought that maybe the staff could, uh, could do some of this holy work. But in terms of the resurrection, it has to be the man of God. And it has to be a holy man, not a prideful man. And so Gehazi, you know, what he does just falls flat. And it literally is, it takes the man. And in this case, as I mentioned last week, the difference between Elisha even and Jesus is Elisha must pray. He prays. Jesus simply speaks and things happen. So you notice this even with Elijah too on occasion. They, the power doesn't exist within themselves. It comes from outside of them. And this comes up in different places in the New Testament too, like um, in 2 Peter 1, when it talks about uh, the knowledge of God being imparted to someone. The Greek is this. Epigenosis. And epigenosis, so this would mean knowledge. And this prefix means that the knowledge has to come upon you. So it, it has like, it comes from outside of you and it descends and then lands upon you. So, you know, you see this in different places in the New Testament where it talks about knowledge and God, God must be the giver of it. And you see this with Elisha, the same concept with Elisha, where it must come from, from the Lord. So, yes. Excuse me, two questions. Is there, I know you talked about the breath, being like the breath of creation. Is there a significance between like the eyes and the hands? Like, why did, like it specifically said those parts, even though if, if he lies on top of them, then everything's touching everything. Right? Why does it say those? Yeah. The other question is, why does he have to do it twice? Lie down, get up and walk around. Yeah. Yeah, that's a complete mystery as to why he gets up and walks around and comes back. Um, but definitely, like it, it's like the whole person comes back to life, right? So it's just like God created Adam, but then he must breathe the breath of life. So, you know, in this sense, it takes, like... He needs Elisha's eyes to see. He needs his ears. He needs his nose. He needs his mouth. He needs his hands. Like, it all must be communicated. And, you know, I've often wondered, like, how is that stretching? You know, how does that look? You know, and Holly brought it up last week that it's sort of like likened to ordination where the man who's taking holy orders lays out flat, like in the shape of a cross right out in front of the altar. And I often wonder if this is kind of like what it looked like. Is it kind of a cross-like sort of a posture? It's very interesting to me. I forget which uh, account of Jesus where he had to uh, try twice. Wasn't it to uh, uh, the blind man's eyes? Like he tries once and then oh. in time to actually make it work. Because it's like this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where he sees like only partial vision and then Jesus gives him whole vision. So it takes like like two times. That's right. Yeah, that's a good thought. I hadn't thought about that. But and I don't know what the significance would be of that, but yeah, you you do see patterns like that. Yeah, that's a great mystery, I think. Try again. Yeah, if at first you don't succeed, try again. That is a good, that's good. I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. One, one, one interesting point is in verse 31 when it says there's no life in him. 
it is the same Hebrew word is used as in 1 Kings 18.29 when it is used of dead idols, which is interesting to me. Um, he also bowed himself just as in uh, 1 Kings 18.42 uh, with the... Uh, with the bowing. Yeah, Ahab went up to eat and to drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servants, go up now, look toward the sea. So lots of, lots of holy posture going on in this text. Uh, let me see what else I wanted to... There's a, an, a great quote from uh, an early church father, Caesarius of Arlay. He says, When Elisha came down from the mountain, the widow's son was revived. And when Christ came down from heaven, the church's son, or the Gentiles, were restored to life. So even in the early church, they had this perspective of there's Mount Carmel. Elisha comes down the mountain. He goes and he heals just like Moses comes down and blesses the people and much good happens. Okay, any other thoughts or questions about any of that? Yes, Leah. What do you think of the coming um, after the story with the, um, the widow? Um, and yes, you have two sons who are predators trying to take away slaves and then he ends up helping her so she's able to um, have enough money to pay off her debts. Uh, it just feels like there's a lot of mother-son, like, and that leads right into then the story with a woman who has no sons. Yes. And you talked about last week, too, like how tough it was for a woman to be a widow without any sons and what difficult position they put them in. Yeah. And I wonder if he's coming off a situation, I don't know if it's true chronological, if one would have to drag together, but, like, if she's... This woman is kind of blessed with her son. Mm -hmm. Here, this woman that is so wonderful to him, and maybe he's thinking, well, what happens to this woman once her husband perhaps dies and she becomes a widow? I don't know if it's, I, I just don't know, I wonder if they're related or how they're connected. So, this would be a great study. Um, and I was kind of working on this a little bit as I was prepping for, for us this morning. There really is a, a heavy theme throughout the Old Testament where at the time of an agricultural harvest, God often reveals his word and blessing to, pro, to the prophets. And, and there's, it's, it's sort of like this whole thing where there's often a threshing floor, there's a prophet, God reveals his word to the prophet, and it's at the time of, of harvest. And associated with that are the gifts of the first fruits. And so this text falls in line with this theme because there's this famine in the land. So you're talking about 2 Kings 4, 38 and following, right? You're talking about what follows immediately. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is so interesting because this account of the Shunammite woman is couched with two end caps. And so you have the widow's oil here. And then at the end, what I thought you were talking about is then the, the famine in the land and the deadly stew and, the, and all of that. So you see on each end a world in, in need. And you know, with this woman, she is really in, in a difficult situation because 
she's gonna die, right? And her, and, uh, her husband is dead. The creditor is coming. She's, they're gonna be slaves. The, the two boys are gonna be slaves. And so he says, go borrow vessels and then shut the door and then start pouring oil into these vessels and just keep doing it. And when the vessels are full, she, uh, she says to her son, bring me another vessel. And he says, there is not another. It stopped flowing. She came, told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. Um, so, so what was your question exactly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you you see particularly in in these accounts with Elijah and Elisha is you really see a lot of imagery for the New Testament and for the Gospels. Um, you see the falling apart of the temple and temple worship. Uh, and, you know, you see the world and the famine and, and what, what is coming out of it is all this New Testament language about caring for widows and the poor. And, uh, and, and it is true, like, Jesus comes and reverses everything. And we see little pictures, so like typology, you see little typology here and there of what comes to fruition in Jesus and in, in the church. And if these prophets, they are taking the place in a sense of the temple. And so you're seeing like the Great Commission, where, you know, in the Old Testament, the temple is a place, and everybody has to go to that place. But now, even in the Old Testament, the people are struggling, and so the temple begins to move, you know, which you see in the New Testament, right? There's um, <clears throat> centripetal mission and centrifugal mission in the Bible, and so centripetal would be where everything goes to the center. So here's the temple. And you'll see language of this like in the Psalms where people are being drawn to the temple. But then in the New Testament, it's centrifugal where the church goes out and it goes to different places. And you're, so you're already starting to see, like with Naaman, the, he's a Gentile. He's blessed. Um, you see the widows being cared for. You know, you're seeing God moving about and blessing the people. And so I, I think maybe that is the, the bigger picture of what is seen with the widow's oil, he's, he's restoring her because, you know, if you think about, like you said, religiously, a woman in that culture needed a man to even go into the temple. Uh, and so you would hope to have male children. And this was the thing with uh, the Shunammite woman. Her husband is thought to have been older than her. So if he dies, then she has no access. And so Elisha provides a male child, which will be a continued blessing for her if her husband dies. Well, in this case with the woman, uh, with, the two, with the two, was it two sons? Yeah, so if the sons go into slavery, now she, her life is over unless it can be turned around. And so Elisha comes and touches her life and re 
does a reversal and restores. And this is what we so often see, right? Is the notion of reversal in the scriptures. Yes. Coming out of the word, believe that okay, just keep up bringing uh, things to go on and the same thing happens. And then the next kind of miracle he has in John is healing an official son. But it's kind of interesting to see that same sequence happening here. Like you said, it's like a shadow of the New Testament. Yes. You do. That's a really good point. Yeah, you do. You see that sequence happening over and over. And, you know, oil is, um, it has many, many benefits in that world. And, uh, you know, the holy oil is, is somewhat likened to the Holy Spirit. And uh, so, yeah, really good, really good points there. All right, any other questions or comments? Okay, so let's take a look briefly. Let's go ahead to 2 Kings 8 and just look at the Shunammite land being restored here. And we've only got a couple minutes, so I don't know if we can get through this, but... um, In chapter 8, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, When the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she had left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him. Oh, and I guess this then kind of moves on, doesn't it? This doesn't really consider the woman at that point. But yeah, okay, well, we won't go through that. But uh, yeah, it is interesting how the Shunammite woman did seem to have a good relationship with Elisha. I mean, he is certainly a Jesus figure. And, you know, there is a connection to all of this. So a couple of New Testament things you could jot down. So a connection to Jesus raising the dead. Uh, Mark 5, 39 to 42. And Luke 7, 13 to 15. And then John eleven forty three and 44. But then you also have um, St. Luke 8, 49 to 56. In all of it, what, there are attributes that you see in the text in the Old Testament that do come out in the New, though, because you have this sense of power So dynamis, if you look at page two of the handout, there's the sense of power. There is energia, which is energy or working. And energia, as I've mentioned before, is an attribute of the Holy Spirit. 
And then you have the sense of peace or irene. And in, in the, even in, so in the book of Acts, you really see this. You see these words and these concepts coming up and you see it in the life of the Shunammite woman and in the work of Elisha. And you see this for us too then. Uh, for us, the church today, we ourselves are caught much like the Shunammite woman and much like the woman with the, neat, you know, the jars of oil. And there are just these struggles in life. And there's a struggle. The struggle of life often presses in on faith and it tests faith. And sometimes we struggle with faith in the midst of it all. And Jesus has provided for us a little chapel, right? Just like the woman provides for Elisha. And that little chapel is our church, our altar. And there he provides for us word and sacrament. And through the word and through the sacraments, our Lord is coming to us just like Elisha comes to the dead child. And Jesus, through the word, breathes upon us. And in fact, a very similar connection to the breath of life being breathed into the nostrils of Adam, the breath of Elisha being breathed into the dead child, a similar thing happens with Jesus in the Gospels when he turns to his disciples and it says, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That is really the fruition of it all. We often think about, you know, it's, I think humanly, the, the human dynamic is we often think about these texts and we think, oh, well, he raised the dead there, but, you know, now we wait for the resurrection and, you know, God doesn't seem to work, you know, in the same way today. But through the apostolic ministry and through the apostolic scriptures, which are read from the lectern and preached from the pulpit, every time you go into church, you come in with all the things of life and you sit there and as the scriptures are read and as the sermon is preached, Jesus is breathing into your nostrils the breath of life. And I want to, I hope to comfort you in the fact that when you go to church and you have the, the holy gifts of word and sacrament being given to you, God is doing what Elisha did to that child. So if you come into church and you feel beleaguered and you feel weak and your soul is tired and you need to be restored, it is through these holy gifts that you are restored and brought to life again. You are renewed. That's okay. <laughs> Those things always go off at the, yeah, it's okay. So it happens for you today. The Lord restores your soul. And so, you know, all those texts from the scriptures, you know, in Matthew's gospel, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You know, that is not just fancy language for you. Jesus is not that kind of a Lord and Savior that just gives you some nice words, some nice poetic words and then goes about his way. He actually delivers to you what he says in those words. And he delivers it in the room that has been set up so that we may have the holy things of God flow and bleed upon us. So thanks be to God for these wonderful gifts. Let's go ahead and close with prayer and the benediction. 
O Lord, stir up the hearts of your faithful people to welcome and joyfully receive your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that he may find in us a fit dwelling place, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.